Hebrews chapter 13, and this evening, Lord willing, we're going to finish the book. So Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 through 25. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. Lord, we pray that these words that we find with ink on page, would not be just simply that, but we would find as we read and as we study your word that you, by your Holy Spirit, would take these words and feed our souls with them, Lord. May our hearts just be enlivened and burn with passion after hearing from you this great word of blessing that we find here at the end of this book. We ask, Lord, that you would minister to our hearts, that you would keep distraction from our minds, and that we would walk out of here knowing you better and loving you more than we did when we came in, Lord. And to that end, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. When I was a kid, I really, I I was a reader, I don't know why the rest of my kids didn't pick that up, but I was a reader. And one of my favorite things to read was one of them choose-your-own-adventure books, right? You know what I'm talking about? I was a cheater, though. I would go to the very last page and read the very last page of the book and then start the book and figure, try to figure how do I get myself to the end of the book. Sometimes it worked great, sometimes it just made the process a lot worse and more harder. Well, what I want to do right now is I want to look at the end of this before we look at the benediction part in verses 20 and 21. So I'm going to do a little cheating, just to be honest. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Now, You might think, geez, we've been in this book of Hebrews for like a year. (laughs) Briefly. (laughs) Well, you can read the whole thing in under an hour. If, If just reading it at a normal pace, it's not a very long book. And if you look at the book of Acts, for example, you find that Paul, when he preached, sometimes preached for hours and hours and hours. Remember that guy who fell out of the window because he talked so long and died and Paul had to raise him from the dead? So, this is brief. Even around the world, when you go and and worship with other believers, often their services last three, four, five, six hours long. 
with all kinds of preaching and all kinds of things going on. So really, this is honestly brief. Maybe not by American standards, but by most of history and by, I think, what we could say the rest of the Christian world standard is. But it was an exhortation, right? An exhortation is a positive word, but it's meant to stir something up within you. And we've looked at this book because these Hebrew Christian, these Jewish Christian believers had embraced Christ, at least by profession, and in doing so had left Judaism behind only to experience persecution. And once they were being insulted, ostracized from their friends and family, beaten for their faith and we saw in chapter 10 that some of them were imprisoned and some of them went to prison to go take care of their brethren only to have their belongings stolen and their property vandalized while they were gone this persecution was getting harsh and intense to the point where some of the believers or at least some of the professing believers in Jesus Christ, were deciding this is too hard, I'm done, and they turned back to Judaism, or Judaism mixed with some mysticism, some odd spiritualism, that kind of thing. So the exhortation that he's writing to them briefly here is one, it's a positive word that you don't have anywhere else to go to. If you turn your back on Jesus Christ, the very best and greatest of all beings, there is nothing else to turn to. And we'll look at that in a little more in depth when we get back to the benediction in verse 20. But he goes on to say, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released with whom I shall see you if he comes. Now these last two verses are 23 and 24. We looked at when we started the book because it helped us have some contents for who wrote the book and why, and why some people think Paul wrote this, because Timothy's included here by name. And here we find, greet the leaders and the saints. Those who come from Italy send you your greetings, and that gave us the insight that this is the Roman church of the Hebrews, mostly house churches that were, would gather together regularly, but yet also individually in homes. And grace be with all of you. So there's the end, but let's back up to the benediction where I really want to spend the bulk of our sermon. I think we need to spend the bulk of our sermon here as we finish out this book. He says, now may the God of peace. Peace is what this church needed. I think peace is what all Christians need, certainly, right? Because apart from Christ, we know the Bible says that we are by nature children of wrath, meaning that we're under the discipline and punishment of God, and God is at war with us. And I've said it before that God is at war with us for us, right? He's at war with us, and for those of us who are brought to him, our rebel sinful hearts have to be changed And in order for that to happen, God comes in via the Holy Spirit, takes out our heart of stone, puts in a heart of flesh, brings us into this new covenant with him that we'll talk about in a minute, and gives us peace. 
Peace is one of the things that <clears throat> the world longs for. It's the world hopes for. Right? Peace treaties are signed all the time. And you'd think the way that they sign and are broken that, you know, they aren't worth the paper and ink that they're printed with. Because <laughs> peace treaties are broken all the time, routinely, regularly. In fact, you can go back through history and see peace treaties signed and broken, signed and broken, signed and broken. And the goal, it seems like, if these peace treaties are something that says this is important to humanity, for humanity, you would think would be peace. Right? Striving for peace with my fellow man, striving for peace within countries, only to find that that peace is broken. Well, God is the one who actually gives peace. He gives peace to our soul, He gives peace to our conscience, He gives peace to our heart and to our minds. He is the God. Of peace. Now remember, when when in the Adam, in the Adam, in the garden with Adam, <clears throat> God gave him one stipulation, one command in his covenant. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam, in violating that covenant, brought all of humanity into this place of sin and rebellion. The way we know we don't have peace with God is because of our guilt, because of our shame. Right? I mean, it's the very first thing we find Adam and Eve doing in the garden, isn't it? Going and finding some fig leaves and sewing up some clothes for themselves (laughs) so they could cover themselves. And God said, who told you you were naked? Nobody had to tell them because guilt and shame had been brought in and they experienced what it is to be estranged from God Almighty. And so the history of the world has been one that has strived to either suppress that guilt and shame and find an artificial peace or try to find peace in some other measure, some other way, some other shape, some other form, only to fail and fail and fail and fail, which is why we need Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Because what he did is when he came into this world, he did what no person could do up until that point, and that was live according to God's law perfectly, absolutely, completely perfectly. The only one who truly had peace with God ever was Jesus Christ. Perfect peace, right? He says in the book of John chapter 5, he says, I only do what the Father tells me to do. I am united to the Father. I am one with him. And they understood what that meant so much so that they took up stones to kill him. And he said, why are you stoning me? And they said, because you being a man are equating yourself with God. And he could do that because it was true, but he could do that because he was the only one who had peace with God. They had a relationship. And no one else has had that. But when Christ lived perfectly according to the law, he was in all points tempted as we are and yet without sin, the book of Hebrews chapter 4 says. 
And then he, upon that cross, God, instead of being there united in that heart of peace, instead chose to pour out judgment and wrath and condemnation on Jesus Christ. You see, God treated Jesus as if he has committed my sins so that he could treat me as if I had lived Jesus' perfect life. My peace that I have with God comes because Christ bore my punishment in my place, my sin in my place, my judgment in my place. So whereas I have no claim on God and him owing me anything, much less peace with himself, I have it because Jesus Christ went to the cross for me and bore what I deserve. He stood in my place. And the proof, the very proof that God's peace is true for me, oh, I love this. You're going to love this, guys. Is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why? Because the wages of sin is what? The wages of sin is what? Death. Death. But the gift of God is through Jesus Christ our Lord because he has been raised from the dead. Death could not hold him. Death could not keep him down. Death could not maintain its grip upon him because he had no sin upon him. He was treated as if he had committed my sins, but he had never committed my sins. So while he was punished in my place, I receive the benefit of that punishment, and that's peace with God forever. And Christ is raised from the dead because he was sinlessly perfect. That's good news. That's peace. That's real peace. And then he goes on. He says, our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep. Now, remember, who's he writing to? Who are these guys? They're who? Jewish Christians, right? These people who knew the Old Testament pretty well. You think, right? So if he says Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep, their minds are going to probably go back to one of the Psalms that mentions the shepherd, right? Now, I work in the funeral industry Can anybody guess what psalm I hear all the time? 23. (laughs) Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, right? I mean, some of you could probably quote it by heart. The reason why that's quoted so often is because of that line, though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, right? It's not inappropriate to use that psalm when we're talking about death. It brings comfort, and it should. But it's not really a psalm of death. It's a psalm of life. Look with me. Turn to Psalm 23. We're going to walk through the whole psalm, so turn there. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Oh, talk about a beginning. (laughs) Can you imagine just 
David puffing up his chest. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Right? You can imagine this proud sheep just strutting around the pasture, you know? My shepherd, he takes good care of me. I have no lack. I have no want at all. The Lord is my shepherd. He, verse 2, makes me lie down in green pastures. Remember, this is an arid, dry, desert land, right? I mean, you just think about the time of David. How many times do we find him, you know, ski-daddling out into the wilderness trying to get away from somebody, hiding in a cave, right? Or running through the desert or some kind of thing like that, right? This is not green pasture land for the most part. (laughs) And so when David calls this to mind and says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What does he think of God? He thinks of God taking him not into the area where it is common and known and understood, where you have to really work hard to find something to eat for your sheep. No, God takes him into green, lush pastures where it just bespeaks of rest comfort tranquility peace he leads me beside still waters not a rushing violent brook or stream or river but beside waters that also speak of peace And that calmness that we need for our souls, that we desperately long for. God provides that. He, God, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Now we'll get to that in verse 21, leading us in paths of righteousness or holiness. But here's verse 4, the infamous verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. For your rod and your staff comfort me. Now, I've used this illustration before, but it's so fitting here. It would be foolish not to use it again. Charlotte is not here tonight, but often you have seen Charlotte come on up here, right in the middle of my sermon, right? (laughs) She is oblivious to all y'all. Well, until I get her up here and she starts seeing your eyeballs, maybe, and she gets a little antsy. But she does not have those sensibilities that you all have, right? She doesn't think to stay in her seat. She just thinks, Papa, and comes on up here. Well, I'm up here and here's a shadow behind me. We all think it's so cute when she comes running up here and I pick her up and I hold her and I love it. I'm always going to do it. I'll do it with your kids too. I've done it with your kids, Raul. <laughs> but I'll do it with your kids too. No, but I love it. Absolutely love it. But think about if she came running up here and I was like, ah, she ran by me and started rolling around on the ground trying to grab on my shadow. That's an odd kid you got there, Pat. <laughs> That's a little weird. Why is she rolling around trying to grab on that shadow, Pat? You see, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, 
The shadow is not the substance, right? I am the substance. The shadow is not. The shadow points to something that's greater than it. The shadow of death points to something greater. We can walk through the valley of the shadow of death and not fear because there's something greater beyond death for each and every one of us. That's God. It's Jesus. We can walk through that because we know on the other side, he is there ready to meet us. He is there for us. So we don't roll around on the shadow and, you know, flail about and worry about that. Instead, we know that on the other side, he's there waiting to meet us. He is there waiting for us. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You see, this is a psalm of life because it's a psalm whereby we are depending upon God for everything. He is our everything. He is the warp and woof of our existence. He is our all in all. He does everything, including what might be taken as a a great point of anxiety and despair, preparing us a table in the presence of our enemies. But we can even rejoice in the presence of our enemies because God is the one who even prepares the table there for us before our enemies. You see, goodness, mercy, God's grace, God's peace overflows to us all the days of our life. And while we live, and even after we're done living here on this earth, when we're at heaven, in heaven with the Lord, we will dwell in his house forever. You see, back to the book of Hebrews. He says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. This is what they think of, right? Has to be. There's a couple other passages that talk about God being the shepherd, but Psalm 23 is all about God being a shepherd. And you unite that with Jesus himself in John chapter 10 saying, I am the great shepherd. I know my sheep and I call them by name. I, I like nicknames. Some of you have a nickname from me. <laughs> some of them are favorable, some of them not so much. But I like nicknames. It wouldn't be wise to give somebody that I just met a nickname, maybe. Because I don't know them well enough, and the thing I say they might take as being me making fun of them or something like that. But when I've known you long enough and you're close to me and you're my friend and I give you a nickname, it means I know something about you. It means that I like you and I might even go so far as to say I'm in a sense liking you so much that I'm willing to even if it were jeopardize our friendship by calling you a name that should be endearing. It's a term of endearment, giving somebody a name. Jesus did this with Peter. Right? 
Peter's name was originally Simon. And Jesus said, yeah, I'm not going to call you that. (laughs) I'm going to call you Peter. Now, Peter means rock, right? That's a good name. All right. That's right. I'm the rock. I like that. Powerful. Strengths, right? Now, if you know Peter, you know he was anything but that at times. (laughs) That guy's a chump sometimes. (laughs) That guy was not great sometimes. He was putting his foot in his mouth all the time. He straight up denied Christ three times on the night when he was being betrayed. When he was being led to the captain or being led to the courthouse, then being led to his crucifixion, denied Christ three times. I don't know him. I don't know him. May I be damned to the lowest hell if I knew him. That's what he said, literally. That's not rock. <laughs> That's not strength. That's not powerful, you see. But Jesus knows his own sheep and he calls them by name. Because you see, we see this tiny little speck of a minuscule moment of life. And God not only sees the end, but he sees the beginning. And he knows from whence we came and where we are headed. And all of it and everything in between is absolutely in his control 100%. And so no little one moment is going to take God by surprise and Christ is going to be like, oh dang, I made a mistake with you. (laughs) You see, he is the author and finisher of our faith. He will never leave us nor forsake us. That's what the great shepherd does with his sheep. He is there, he is there, he is there, he is there. Always present, always providing, always protecting. He is the great shepherd of us, his sheep. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. You see, this is a great way to end this epistle to these Hebrew believers who were struggling with turning their back on Jesus, going back to Judaism, going back to the law, going to some mysticism. And instead he says, no, it's all about Jesus. And to end right here and say, he is our great shepherd is his way of saying, he is everything that you need. It's all about Jesus. And he did this by the blood of the eternal covenant. Right? Two covenants. Right? Old covenant. Adam, law, do, obey, follow. Whatever word you want to use in that context and category. Adam fell. Couldn't fulfill the law. Moses, given the law, the whole nation fell, including Moses himself. And everybody before and everybody after has fallen in Adam and fallen according to God's standard, the law. The old covenant is, I am your God and you will be my people so long as you, whatever. Don't eat of the tree. Obey the Ten Commandments. Follow the laws that are written in the Old Testament. Right? I will be your God. You will be my people as long as you. Old covenant. But there's a new one. There's a better one. Eternal covenant. Eternal. It never ends. 
This one ended, right? The very first time I sinned, this old covenant, I broke. I don't know if I was two when that happened or one or... It doesn't matter, does it? (laughs) Because I broke it early on. Maybe Ben's broken it already. I don't know. He's younger than I was. (laughs) So maybe I broke it before Ben. I don't know. I don't want to make Ben feel bad. (laughs) Sorry, Ben. (laughs) But we broke that law. But there is an eternal covenant. You see, this covenant has been secured by the blood, not of bulls and goats, which could never atone for any sins at all, but rather by the blood of Jesus Christ himself. The blood of the eternal covenant, meaning that he now says under this new covenant, because Christ secured the duty that is ours by obligation of being one of God's creation, Christ secured for us so that God can now say, I am your God, you are my people, period. It's the joy that we find in Revelation 21, there at the end of the last book of our Bibles, whereby God says, I am your God, you are my people. I wipe away every tear from your eyes. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering. You are mine. And the reason why he can say that in such definitive and exact terms is because Christ secured for us this eternal covenant. Right? The book of Revelation shows us what was ruined in the garden under the old covenant is perfectly and completely restored in the person of Jesus Christ. So where this first Adam fell and failed and misery and death and pain ensued, The second Adam, Christ, comes along and establishes a life of peace and righteousness and hope and joy and passion and love all in his name. Now, verse 21. If you read verse 21, you might have a thought in your head. How can phrase one and how can phrase two be complementary to one another? Look what it says. Verse 21. Equip you. Now, remember, this is a, a benediction. It's a prayer. The writer's asking God to do something. God, may he equip you with everything good that you may do his will, right? Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Well, which is it? Is it me working because I've been equipped to do it? Or is it God working, making me pleasing in his sight? Do you see that? What's going on here? First of all, may God equip you with everything good that you may do his will. You see, the assumption behind that is that if you don't have God's help, you're not going to do God's will, right? That's the assumption behind that. That's why the prayer is being prayed. Otherwise, it doesn't make much sense, does it? If God, let me say this as clear as I can. If God doesn't help you, you won't do God's will. Therefore, you need God's help to do his will. That's why he equips you. That's why we pray that he would equip you, right? Gus. So I'm going to pick on you for just a second. All right, good. Gus, 
pray, God, equip you to do everything in God's will, that you may do his will. So my prayer is may God bless Gus, equip Gus, enable Gus, give him all the tools in the toolbox of God that he can do God's will. All the while working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. So while it sounds like the writer is talking out of both sides of his mouth, on one side, Gus got to do it. On this side, God's going to do it. Here's what's actually taking place. This is the best illustration I could think of and come up with. Now, all my kids, every single one of them, if you put them on a bike, they can ride it. Hope it might be a little wobbly. No, she's got balance. She's a ballerina. Lily might, she's not here. I'll pick on Lily. She might be a little wobbly, but she can still ride a bike. Why? Why can they ride a bike? Is it because one day when they were like seven, they went out there and just cracked their knuckles and like, I'm going to do this, hopped on, and took off? No. Old Pat had to run behind him, <laughs> holding on to that bike seat, right? Now, all the while, Lily's pedaling like mad with her feet, up and down, up and down. But I'm right there behind her holding that seat so that she isn't going to fall down. So is she doing the work or am I doing the work? She's been equipped, got her a bike, put a little tush on the seat, running behind her. She's equipped to do everything that's pleasing to me, that's according to my will, which is get her to ride the bike. Is she doing it? Yeah. She is, right? As best she can. Her little legs are pedaling. She's doing some of these, you know, but she's doing it. Now I'm running there right along with her because I'm working that which is pleasing in my sight. That's the way, as best I can describe, this taking place. Yes, God equips us to do everything good that we may accomplish his will. But he is right there along with us the entire time, all of our lives, right alongside us. Now, I get tired running behind my daughter. But God doesn't. Praise God, right? Because, man, I need him there as it were, holding my seat all the way along. Look at Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For, here's why you should be working, working out your salvation with fear and trembling. For, because it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Again, you see, it's similar language to what we're looking at in Hebrews here. Here he says to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. And again, that's likened to the riding of the bike. We work out. I I try to not sin. I do, believe it or not. I do try to not sin. Sometimes I try really hard. Sometimes not so much. But I try to not sin. 
Where does that desire come from? Well, according to this, it doesn't come from me, does it? God is at work within me to will, to want to. God gives me the want to's and to work for his good pleasure. He not only gives me the equipment I need to do what's right, but even more than that, he gives me the desire to want to do it. God leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake, right? Psalm chapter 23, we talked about that. I said I'd come back to it. He's the one who leads me in paths of righteousness. He's the one who gives me the desire. He's the one who gives me the will to do it. He's the one who works within me. And he's the one by the power of the Holy Spirit that gives me everything that I need in order to live a godly life. As I read my Bible, pray, live, trusting the Holy Spirit to do that, he will work in my life. Now, it might be in a very strong way, in a very acute way in working out something, or it might be a long, 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 long battle, an endurance run, right? And that's the language of the book of Hebrews. Chapter 12, let us let aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame of it, but is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, that's our race. We're running towards Christ. We look to him and him alone. I don't look to Joel as I run this race or Raul or you guys look to me. We look to Christ, right? When you come in here, My responsibility is to point you to Christ so when you walk out, he is your vision. He is your hope. He is where you're looking. He is your desire. He is your passion. He is your life. Jesus, 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 Jesus. That's what it's all about. Nothing else. We have to be pointed to Jesus over and over and over and over and over and over again. It's our hope as Christians. It's the hope for the world that's out there that's not Christian. It's for everybody. Jesus Christ is it and it alone. That's why the encouragement to Hebrews was so powerful and so strong because there's nothing else out there. We have nowhere else to go. And for some people, that might sound very narrow and almost hopeless. But frankly, God doesn't even owe us that. It's by his grace that he's given us Jesus Christ. Look at how it ends. Through Jesus Christ, to whom... Be glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, our salvation, our redemption, in what some might call this narrow way, but I am grateful for that narrow way, is the way that brings glory and honor to Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever and ever. And I love him for it. Jesus is the greatest of all beings. He is the chief of all beings. He is our God, our hero, our friend, our savior, our king, and our great shepherd. 
our Savior, the giver of the eternal covenant. May all glory be to him. Amen. Father God, we thank you for the precious love that you have given to us through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, you are marvelous beyond words. And while we hear from your word and our minds wrestle with the truth that is contained therein, we ask, Lord, that you would point our minds, point our heart, point our affections right back to you, Jesus. That we might be both mindful and passionate about you, our Savior. Because you truly are the greatest of all beings, the greatest of all things, and the only reason that we can have any hope in this life or the life to come. We can go through that valley of the shadow of death not fearing because, Lord, you are not only there with us, but on the other side as well. And so, Lord, we pray that as we come to the end of this book that we would be emboldened hopefully like the Hebrews of old, to follow you, follow your word, and worship you, being equipped with everything that we need in order to live a life that's both pleasing to you and that brings you glory and honor. In your name, amen.